0: Please.
1: Welcome to another edition of truth and rhythm brought to you by funkandstuff.net this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove i'm your host scott dr Jake golfein musicologist and author of everything's on the one the first guy to funk if you don't have your copy get on over to amazon to pick one up you'll be so glad you did whether you're watching the video version of this at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify. As always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funken stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies. You'll get uh, early premieres and it's all free, so make sure you sign up, tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff gear at the Funkandstuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here. Truth and Rhythm shirts show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to the funkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership Canadian bassist, Rhonda Smith, best known for her wonderful work with Prince and more recently Jeff Beck. She's also worked with many other well-known artists and released a pair of solo albums. Rhonda, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me, Scott. Much appreciated. Good time to get me right now. (laughs) (laughs)
1: hey i've been trying for a while i'm so glad to thank you for for making it happen no worries yeah and where are you coming to us from today
0: uh i am in california southern california beautiful sunny southern california we're getting ready to get 90 degree weather in the next couple of days high 80s so it's going to be quite nice
1: okay well i'm from los angeles but i've uh, i left in 2005 but i definitely miss a lot of it and the entertainment industry is in my blood being from there. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: for sure, it's a great city. It really is. It's a lot of fun, a lot of things to do when you can go outside. That is
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. well, this won't be seen for a few weeks. Uh, hopefully, by then, the situation will have gone a little better than what we've been looking at. And hopefully, musicians and everyone else can start returning to some normalcy, uh, you know, not too long from now. <laughs>
0: I'm praying. Like I was saying, our business is uh, the hardest hit, I think, of of any. And um, as I was stating, we're probably going to be the ones that go back to work last because they're going to allow people to open up their businesses probably um, a little at a time so that they can still do social distancing and all all these things, which absolutely makes sense. Um, But unfortunately, in the business that we're in, Uh, crowd distancing doesn't work. We need crowds. So, uh, I think it's going to affect the musicians and the clubs a little bit harder than everybody else. So we're all going to try to band together and, and, and pray and help, help our, our fellow musicians out and people and, and, you know, hope that they can make it through and that we don't lose some of the, uh, clubs that we've all played in that are local, that we all love, you know, so that we can still continue in time to, to see great bands in, um, in a more serene kind of setting, closer, you know, more intimate settings.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And then we can get back on tour. That would be lovely. <laughs> you know, and people want to see it. So, you know, people want to see live music. I don't think anything will ever happen with that. AI is not going to take that over for sure. I
1: don't want to go see robots oh. play. No, know. no, yeah. yeah. I mean, people may have to keep, you know, six feet away from each other or something like that. But hopefully we'll get back to it one, one way or another.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: So Rhonda, you know, I know you came from a musical household and you had some formal training and all that kind of stuff, but could you tell us a little bit of what it was like coming up in that kind of musical environment and what drew you to the bass in particular?
0: Well, it was encouraged. I have, uh, I'm the youngest of three. I I have an older sister and two older brothers and they all played music. It was, uh, we had piano, pianos in the house. It was um, encouraged um, by our parents and where we grew up at that time. Uh, Music was a big thing. Um, and it was a smart thing. Music is math. It's a lot of different things. So, you know, going into that, we hate to see now when, when funding gets cut and, you know, the arts and music gets, gets cut because it's a really, it saved a lot of our lives and kept a lot of us out of trouble. That's for sure. But um, all of my brothers and sisters, uh, all, all of my brothers and my sister played instruments and so did my mother. They went through uh, really good at the time, high school music programs. Uh, that we had in uh, Montreal, um, Canada on the West Island with a really good teacher. And, and um, they all played. They were all in bands after school doing all of that. So it was definitely encouraged. I remember I used to sit under the piano and watch my brother have his um, his jazz band rehearsals or his ensembles, because he was a, a trombone player. And he's still he still does that professionally. He's an arranger and a teacher of, of jazz composition and all of that stuff. Um, but I didn't want to play trombone. I wanted somebody to look up to, but, and I did, but I, I wanted an instrument that I thought was fun. My sister played clarinet, so I didn't really, you know, want to go there either. And my other brother, who's closer in my age, he's about 15 months older than me. And we used to be in competition for a lot of things. I used to try to compete with him because he was the closest to my age. So one day we were probably about 11 or 12, um, and he brought a bass guitar home and, uh, in, in the case, he opened it up and he told me, Don't touch it. So that's what started it. Simple as that.
1: Yeah. Forbidden fruit, right?
0: Exactly. <laughs> I had to do it, Scott. I had to do it. <laughs> so knew- thank God he brought a bass, you know, because probably whatever he brought, well, he played bassoon too. He made his own reeds, but I didn't want to play bassoon. <laughs>
1: I think you yeah. picked the cooler instrument on that on that one yeah I
0: think so too yeah
1: <laughs> Did it did it come to you pretty easily and uh, who were some of you know the artists that you were inspired by
0: you know, I don't know that it came to me that easily. I started probably the same with everybody else, you know, just tinkering around and playing smoke on the water, you know, when I first started. But when I got into a little bit later, I mean, I really, really liked it. And at that time, there wasn't so much R&B around because it, it was Canada and they didn't they didn't play that much. They were more into, Canada was more into rock and, and um, blues and pop music. So I ended up starting with a lot of rock uh, bass players, too, or just listening to a lot of rock, you know, like Hendrix and, and uh, Yes, you know, Chris Squire, and, uh, of course, the Beatles, um, anything that was, was pretty much out there. But we also had a really great community of jazz musicians and jazz clubs, and my mother loved jazz. She would play jazz all the time, Billie Holiday, uh, Oscar Peterson, Um, Ray Brown she loved Ray Brown Um, then you know get a little bit deeper with Ron Carter and, and you know all the all the different great bass players a lot of Miles Davis whatever there was so we had a great club scene and people at that time I'm sure they still do but at that time when I was living in Montreal, they really supported live music. So there was a really big jazz fusion scene and I really got into that a lot. So my brothers and sisters at Christmas, you know, like one of my first records, I remember that that my brother, my older brother brought me, bought me was Rocks, Pebbles and Sand from Stanley Clark. And, um, and then, you know, the Continuum and, and the Jocko stuff and all that other stuff. So, um, I really grew up that way and really loved that. You know, back when you didn't have the amazing slower downers or anything like that, you had to keep listening to the record and putting that needle back on there to, to memorize those licks or take the tape machine and have it just get wound up in the machine. So it was great ear training, too, at that time. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And that's those were a lot of my influence. Definitely a lot of Stanley Clark, um, a lot of Jocko, of course, and then a lot of a lot of rock players. You know that were around at that time. Probably any song that was popular, I was probably learning it, or we were playing it in a garage band somewhere. A lot of Rush, a lot of getty Lee. You know, definitely uh, Police. What I mean, whatever it was. You know, that had some some great bass parts. Uh, I think that's a great. It's a great learning start for anybody to start out with, getting your ears trained to listen mm-hmm. to parts, because it's more than just. When it comes down to it, it's more than just, uh, you know, listening and playing the part and trying to get it, which is which is the fundamental part about it. But with bass players and guitar players and all these other people, we have to think about technique too. You know, where, where am I going to, play? okay, this is the lick, but you know, where on the neck am I going to play it? Which fingers am I going to use on the neck? What's the, the best fingering, you know, which comes in time? Am I going to play with this so that it's easier for me to play or I can play this lick? you know, uh, a lot easier. So all of those things come into motion with the ear training and everything else. So I think that was, that was a good beginning, but I played basically everything, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, and, and what were some of your experiences, you know, before you ever aligned with Prince and did you always feel comfortable or from the beginning, did you feel comfortable on stage?
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Montreal, Quebec. That's where I started playing really professionally. Um, and I got some great opportunities there. And it was a good place to um, to get the nervous bugs out, you know, when you first start. Um, and when I started going into um, CJEP or Junior College, uh, when I was first starting as a music major because at you know then you were either a jazz major or you were a classical major it's not like today which is great there were no pop programs that existed in universities or or CGFs or junior colleges so you couldn't necessarily get a major or you couldn't get a degree in popular music that was something you need to do on your own time you know um But even when I did that, my mother always gave me great advice because she would tell me, you know, because we had to audition for all of these things. Musically, you had to prepare things um, to play. And I always was was given this understanding that regardless of if you get the job or whatever, um, the fact that you're doing an audition is really good practice. This is my new pup, by the way. I just got her six days ago. (laughs) What's her uh, name? She has... Her, name, her name's Roxy, <laughs> and she's five months old. But she has to stay in the room with me because she's I'm little. I have cream carpet all in certain parts of the house, so I have to watch her because she's not completely house trained now. But you understand, so she might, you know, uh, jump in the picture every now and then, photobomb. She's a photobomber, and she's welcome. <laughs> okay.
1: Um, yeah. So I understand. You know, I've I've read and heard that. Uh, The Prince connection came through Sheila E. Is that how it happened? And can you sort of encapsulate how that transpired?
0: Yeah, well, another one of my good friends um, who actually lived in Montreal at that time also, because that's where we met, um, was uh, Kat Dyson, really great guitar player who I played uh, with Prince, also with her. Um, We were at that time doing... NAM shows. It was some of the first times I went to the NAM shows, and we were um, doing some endorsements and some clinics for Godan, which makes really great, you know, guitars and and acoustics, and they're a great company in uh, Quebec also. Um, And they have some really great wood, by the way, great company. So that was one of my first endorsements for bass, and I still love them to this day. They're really, really great people, great company. So they had us come, they sponsored us, and we went up and started playing some clinics the two of us to tracks and we started in um, Anaheim, although I don't think it was, yeah, it was in Anaheim because I I remember it switched after. Uh, We were playing in Anaheim in some booths and Sheila happened to come by. And at that time there weren't as many female musicians as there are now, which is really great to see. So you kind of knew who everybody was because it was a smaller pool of people. So she came by and saw us play a couple of times and, We got to know her a little bit and Kat got to know her uh, really well also. And then we went to the Music Mesa after that in Germany and did the same thing in Germany uh, for Godin. And and Sheila happened to be there again in Germany. So same thing. There weren't that many female musicians at the time. So I guess we kind of just gravitated to each other. And um, at that time, she was going to do a new project with prince i guess they were going to put a new band together this was after the gold experience band probably about 95 maybe 96 and um she was going to be the band leader so she was kind of recruiting some people and looking around and seeing what she liked because she knew that prince was uh always open to you know whatever gender you know whatever whatever race it, it really didn't matter he just wanted a a little bit of everything, you know, to spice it up. And so she liked what we were doing. So we um, gave her the demo and uh, didn't hear from him for the longest time. Then um, all of a sudden, I think I think I got a call, just out of the blue. One of those, um, can you come now, you know? And I was still working in Canada at that time. Um, so of course I said, yeah, man, you know, I'm going to go. So I ended up going myself. I think I went there for three days the first time and we just, uh, I got to meet him, which was incredible. That's when he still had slave written on his face. It was a, a different time at that time when just when emancipation was coming out. And as it turned out, Sheila didn't do, didn't end up doing the project with him. Um, so it was a completely different band and that was the the newer, um, the newer version of the new power generation that I started with, uh, which was Kirk Johnson was playing drums and Morris Hayes was there. So I ended up spending about three days at Paisley Park um, and just jamming with uh, Prince and Kirk. Uh, because there was no possible way that I would know all of his material. He has such a vast catalog. There was really no way for me to prepare for anything. So, and we were just playing odd kinds of things and different stuff and different styles of, of things. And one thing I thought was cool, because at that time, they were using a lot of, not just Prince but a lot of other people too, in, in pop music were using uh, samples of Fretless. And... I didn't really like the way that they sound because they weren't really the same thing especially when it came to the vibrato and stuff you can't um you can't copy that on a keyboard it just it just doesn't it just doesn't sound right and he had a couple of tunes that he had had that on so i thought to myself wow you know i'm gonna i'm gonna bring my fretless with me and let him hear some some real fretless and see you know just see what happens so i brought a fretless with me and i think i brought um i brought a five string at that time and he liked the frontless so much he um, he let me play on two songs on Emancipation before it was out, which was amazing. And one of them was Dreaming About You, where he let me do a solo on the tune. And so I was really flattered by that, and I thought it was really really cool. And then you know when we were done, I guess I probably didn't hear back from him for about then for about two months after that. So I figured, ah, uh, you know, at least I got to play on his record. You know, that's amazing. Um, but then I got to call again, you know, same kind of thing, you know, can, can you come right now? <laughs> you know, can you come today. So, uh, that's, that's how it started pretty much.
1: Wow. And, um, did, and Cat also came down at some point or?
0: Cat came down later. Yeah. Cat came down. Uh, I can't remember how much later, but Kat came down maybe a couple of months later. I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember right now, but she came back down later. Yeah.
1: So when you were first in a room playing with Prince and your first exposure to him, what was your initial impression of, of him as both um, you a know, musician and as a, uh, just a, a guy?
0: Oh, it was amazing. Um, it, it was very overwhelming at first. Um, when you first meet him, that's just the way he is. He was, I hate to even talk in the past tense. Um, getting close to him, all of that, you know, he, he always looked great. He's immaculately dressed, you know, he smells good. He's, he's just, he's just Prince. It's, it's, um, it's overwhelming at first, but then again, those are one of those things that come with experience. You can't let that take over you and get nervous. You know, the same thing you can't do when you play with him on such, such a large scale. You know, um, which some people aren't used to, maybe some people are, but I wasn't, I certainly wasn't used to at that time playing with somebody on that much of a large scale and just coming to America that way and being exposed to the United States market, which is huge compared to the Canadian market. So um, it was, it was amazing. It was a bit overwhelming at first, a bit intimidating, but as I said, you have to get over it because if you can't play nervous, you know? You can't do that. It doesn't work. Nobody did you, wants to this did, person did, or somebody who looks like they're intimidated on stage, you know?
1: Right. Did you essentially succeed Sonny T or was there someone in between?
0: No, I came right after Sonny T, yeah.
1: So, I mean, your style was very different from him. Um,
0: very different. And, and you know, to, to an extent, that's that's part of the story. You know, not only do you have tons and tons and tons of music to learn, you know, just every day is more and more and more music, but you've got to cop the styles of these great players. Prince is a great bass player. So with a distinct sound, you know, that's, that's his and his style, whether you want to call it the Minneapolis sound or whatever, I mean, it's distinctiveness to him, as is Sonny T, and Sonny T was a great bass player, is a great bass player. So um, it, was a lot, it was a lot to learn, definitely
1: and also yeah. just such, what's that?
0: I said, but I did.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, such a change, uh, shift of gears, though, too. I mean, like, guess he did throughout his career, but just in, you know, the the sound choice of going from a sunny T to a Rhonda Smith, you know, um, yeah. much jazzier and more um, sort of uh, tonal and um, a
0: little different. A little different. Yeah. But I mean Sonny's a Sonny's a badass, you know. Sonny's a badass. There's there's no question. Everybody's, you know, it's apples and oranges. Yeah.
1: yeah. But
0: yeah, it's it was it was big it was big for that entire band to step into because there, you know, you got one of the best drummers he ever had too, which was Michael Bland, you know, which was replaced by somebody else too. So it was It was, it it was a lot of work, you know, and a lot of work to make the, to try to make the fans happy, you know, and not be compared to the band before, you know, for them to go, well, why did you get these people, you know, what happened to, you know, Diamonds and Pearls band, oh my God, you know, that was the best band you ever had, you know, so I mean, it's, music is that too, you know, when people want to make changes, you have to kind of let it be the water, you know, off a ducks back and, and do the work and just keep doing the work, you know
1: you came there at an interesting time too because it was a transitional time where he was moving away from the slave thing and got free of warner brothers and emancipation was his big proclamation of uh artistic independence um did you sort of pick up on that i mean it must have been i know there were some elements you know that happened that weren't so great at that time too but from a music and artistic standpoint It was, I think, a period of great feeling of freedom for him. And I'm I'm guessing that was maybe infectious.
0: Absolutely. And it was a major time because, you know, we had a history with Prince. And I think he has a history that, you know, he tours when he wants to, especially when he was, you know, running all his, starting to run all his own stuff and having stuff geared over. So it wouldn't be improbable to spend an entire year rehearsing at Paisley Park, but maybe only do five shows in that whole year. So in saying that, um, it was uh, incredible to go there because it was very, very, very busy. He was doing all kinds of television shows, at that time US television shows promoting that. Um, Oprah Winfrey's whole crew and show came down there and filmed several days of him and his uh, Emancipation concert and, and his interviews and he wasn't really known to be somebody who interviewed either. So this is something that he was doing differently. Um, and we were putting that show together for an Emancipation, you know, that he, was, that he had come out with the release of the record. So there was a lot of stuff going on and he was touring. So, so yeah, it was definitely infectious. And even at that time, there were a lot more people in the building you know, I'm sure that you'll find some people, if you interview them and ask them, you know, the later years of Paisley Park, when he was um, still thriving in there and doing his music, it seemed like every year there was a less and less and less people in there. Not, not saying the band, but I mean administrative people, managers, people in the offices. Um, so when I got there at that time, those offices were still filled with bodies. There were people working. There, but by the time you know from the last time I stopped working with him, which was probably two thousand and nine um, when we did those three shows in one night at I think the Nokia in l a live and that whole thing he did with three different bands. If you would look at Paisley there, there was nobody in any of the offices, maybe one person would come in if it would be Steve Parker or somebody that he would have come in and and just work for a period of time from night and day with no sleep. Uh, either taking pictures or, you know, doing something for him. something Somebody that he brought in. But other than that, there was nobody in the building anymore. Just him. So to say that, so that's, that's to go back to your first question that you were answering. That you asked me to answer. Yes, it was very infectious because it was filled with people. It was very alive. It was more alive. Not saying that it was dead. But he just had it in such a way that um, there was no one else around but him and maybe a cook, you know? Mm-hmm. When we went in, there were seamstresses and, and these ladies oh. were making clothes all the time. You know, it's not like that anymore.
1: I must've been quite a thrill to you when this came out and you were on it, I'm guessing.
0: Oh yeah, at that time it was amazing. I said, wow, even if I don't get the gig, I got, I got to play off for this record. Yeah. So it was great. Great record. I love that record. Oh. And that's something about him that always happens too, you know. And it's terrible when it happens to artists. And after they pass, people go, by, go back and look at the body of work that they criticized before and go, oh my God, this was a masterpiece. This is that. This is. Emancipation was an example of that because man it just was writing all the time. He was a genius. He had so many things to say. And as far as my I, my memory remembers, that wasn't as well received at the time that I I thought that it should have been. Maybe because people were criticizing him because it had too much music. I don't know exactly, but
1: there, win. I have yeah. a lot
0: of favorites. Yeah, couldn't win. I have a lot of favorite songs on that. And I know now the fans are loving it. Everybody's loving it. All the obscure records he's put out, you know, now are masterpieces. But then, you know, when we put out, you know, um, North, East, West and South and, and all those crazy xenophobia and, and all those crazy records people are like what is this rainbow children same thing I, that was a great record and that was a great tour the whole entire concept worked very well
1: that was an awesome tour and um you went out on the um gem of the year tour right so that was your first,
0: that was the first one yeah that yeah. was the first tour
1: and i have the yeah. i think it's a yeah,
0: program i still have that i still have that book too a couple of them um
1: that was a massive tour and um i don't know if yeah. you remember individual stops but i i did see the one at the um irvine meadows amphitheater in california in 97. Mm. yeah um yeah. but um what was it like being on tour with that band first time
0: it was it was amazing i mean like i said i just came from canada i would never done a tour of that size um It it was incredible, and it was an incredible learning experience, you know, again. But I've been through so many different proliferations of the new power generation, you know. So that band was great, but I think I've been through five, four, five, or maybe six other ones. I could be off by a number, but I'd probably say at least four other bands with mostly different players, that we're still the new power generation. So, I mean, I, I've enjoyed them all and they've all been different, you know, in a different way.
1: Well, and Ronda, you mentioned the uh, One Night Alone thing and I have this here too, and that, yeah. um, I was at the Nokia show and the uh, deal where uh, a, a select group of us got to go in beforehand for the rehearsal and then the yeah. after show at the House of Blues. Um, that was like
0: long, long day, Scott. I've never worked with an artist where we work that hard, and you go to bed when the sun's coming up. You know, you're doing a lot, and we know that those those the fan clubs and everybody loved it. The MPG Music people loved it, but it was it was a lot to play a, a lot in the sound check. You know, a couple hours there, and then do a two or three hour show, and then go and play two hours afterwards. In an after party, I wouldn't change a thing. Let me tell you, because I'll never have that experience again in life. But wow, was <laughs> that was wow. a lot, and I hope everybody loved it, and they did, because every every everything was packed all the time.
1: It was incredible. I can't describe it, but you know, as a fan, it was just like a dream come true. And by the time he broke in at Calhoun Square at the House of Blues, I don't know, it was like two or three in the morning or something like that. Um, yeah. My wife was actually like flying to her knees. She was so exhausted, and you guys were still <laughs> playing.
0: <laughs> yeah, in heels, no less. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I yeah. I love that configuration of the band too.
0: It's been some some great bands. I love them all. I I you know, and I especially love the the musicology was really uh, a lot of fun. Outstanding musicians, some of my favorite performances with him, like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, all of that stuff was just, um, was just wonderful.
1: Yeah, Musicology, um, I, think I saw that um, at the Mandalay Bay, Las Vegas, and then uh, as an example of his innovation on in the business side too, that he really started, I think, expanding on while you were part of that, um, was... Broadcasting it to movie theaters, I think, from the Staples Center, and then, of course, the big giveaway of the record at at concerts. And um, what do you think of of Prince as just an innovator on the business side?
0: He was a genius. Um, He was a genius. Has always been. Always been a teacher. He was an amazingly intelligent about that. Never stopped from probably the first time that I met him until the end. Uh, Always doing that, teaching, sharing. And, and that's the one thing that I loved about him, which never changed anything ever. Also, he was a teacher of what he believed in. He would tell you what you should do. He would explain why. He would never hesitate. One of the first lessons he, he's always told me and, and probably anybody else is the importance of owning your own material, owning your own masters, you know, um, owning your own intellectual property. He was very, very much into that. Um he taught everything from scripture to, you know, uh food, <laughs> certain foods that you shouldn't eat, talking about chemtrails early. I mean, just a very astute dude, you know, he read a lot. Also, it's not that he just played all the time, he read a lot of books. He he was he was very knowledgeable in, in what he did. And he was probably would have been a great debater. He was, you know, it was hard to to make him wrong. He could back up everything that he said. Um, So I wasn't surprised, um, not at all, that he came up with ingenuitive things in the industry that people hadn't done before. And some of them, once they worked so well that they made it like you couldn't give out (laughs) CDs and count them as your sales and certain things that he did, he got away with. But then they, they shut it down after that. I mean, smart guy to the end, to the end. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, so you got to work with a lot of other artists through that association, too. I mean, I think you collaborated on the shucka Khan record, right?
0: Yeah, that was great to play, too. And again, that was another fretless beast, you know, that I was playing fretless on that record. Absolutely with uh, uh, Ricky Peterson, great producer, great player. I got the, the opportunity to do that. So I always, always thank the Petersons. What a great family they
1: are. Such a talented family.
0: Very much so, yeah. very much so. And got to meet uh, moms before she passed. Uh, we had one, I think it was, it wasn't a Christmas, but it was a holiday that we had. And I remember Hanato and I were stuck in Minnesota because Prince either didn't make up his mind as to what he wanted us to do. So we couldn't get out in time. We couldn't go back home um, for that particular time. And I think that Prince at the last minute decided to go somewhere and he flew off. So we were stuck there and, and the Petersons, especially Paul Peterson invited us, St. Paul, to, to have um, the holiday with their family. Because uh, we didn't live there. I think we were still in hotels at that time, maybe. And um, just just wonderful people. Just wonderful. Uh, some great memories. Minnesota memories.
1: <laughs> and did you uh, at any point actually uh, relocate to Minnesota?
0: I did. When I first started, I think in uh, 97, probably, I lived there for three years. And I lived in uh, Eden Prairie, just a little bit outside of Chanhassen for about three years but then because we would have little areas of you know I, I'd call it uh, well we take a break you'd either want to do things other projects or, or I'd call it a, a a mutual separation from our marriage <laughs> you know we take a little bit of a break so uh in 1999 we took a break so I moved to uh LA at that time and I did a television show I think for probably about a year and a half called the Martin Short Show on CBS and then um, did a, a couple other things, Wayne Brady, and some couple other little, little little shows that we were doing with the with the same people. And then after that, I think uh, I went back with him again, and I think that was probably around two thousand and one, or yeah, it was probably about two thousand and one. And then there was another configuration at that point of of the New Power Generation. But I never moved back. Either I stayed in one of his houses at that point or at, at some point it was at, in, in a hotel or something. But um, from, then on, from then on, the other little breaks were the same thing. There might have been another break, I think. Took, took another break after Musicology, I think. Um, when, when he put another configuration of another band together. Same kind of thing. And whenever he calls me back, I didn't live there anymore. Since... 1999 late 1999
1: when you were living there though was were you were you sort of on call in a way for for projects?
0: absolutely yeah. always 24 7 yeah yeah I remember one time one night he said there was a day off after we had finished he said we could go do something so I had a friend and uh, I was going to see and he and I went out to dinner um, downtown or around the Mall of America or something and, and uh, I found out later that Prince changed his mind and wanted to have a concert at one at love for one another, and couldn't get a hold of me, so he was very upset. I ended up showing up that night after i don 't know where I got the call from, maybe when I went to back to the hotel or something um, and the next day uh i got a he gave me a beeper <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> tied at the hip yeah.
0: There you go. <laughs> there you go.
1: Yeah. So, um, but you were—I mean, obviously, you handled that fairly well because you spent so many years working with him. So,
0: I would assume. So, yeah, I—I <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I try to do that, Scott. You know, I—I, it's—I have it. I've had a tendency over the the. The majority of my career to rather have longer relationships with individuals that I continue to work with over the years, rather than just working with a, a ton of different people all the time. And and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Whatever floats your boat. Um, mine just has seemed to have been that. As you know, this is my tenth year now with Jeff Beck. So um, and I find it, you know, it's harder to for us as musicians to get a long standing situation. Um, either you're, you're replacing somebody in a group that's already a group, so that's a great situation, or you're just dealing with an artist and it's not a group. So, you know, you're always replaceable at any given time. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit of an art to um, giving the artist what they want and making them feel comfortable with you, which goes to a lot of different things. It goes down to friendships, you know, goes down to music, how you play, how dependable you are, you know, what kind of person you are too, I guess in their eyes and, and being a friend, you know, because you end up spending a lot of time together and you travel a lot together, you know, and you sleep on buses together and people want to be comfortable with you. So I, there's a lot to it, a lot more than playing. As some people have said to me when I grew up too, and I believe this, you know, uh, they would rather take a lesser player than an amazing player who's a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. You know, because nobody wants to babysit anybody. You know, we've all got work to do.
1: Yeah.